0: Welcome, Chris, to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Pat. Nice to be here.
0: I was just sharing my introduction to your work. This is twenty, almost over twenty years ago now. Your first book, I read it, but I don't get it. I was um, a newly minted fifth and sixth grade teacher, and I realized I had to teach readers and not just reading as a subject area. And I wasn't sure what to do. And so I found your book and uh, I read it a couple of times. I had so many post-its in there kind of uh, taking to heart. What you recommend And the text was much thicker with all the post-it notes inside of it um, after I'd read it a couple of times. So, um, but I've enjoyed every one of your books since then. Uh, your newest one is why do I have to read this literacy strategies to engage our most reluctant students? So tell me if you can tell us what, what prompted you to write this book?
1: Well, th- thank you for reading my book. I I do appreciate that and for your time. You know, I guess I I think for me there was always there's always been kids that I just struggled to hook, and I really wanted to dig into to those kids to figure out what you know how do I get how do I get those students engaged? And um, we were just talking about my instructional coach and in friend Sam Bennett, and I think when she would come visit. That was one of the things that um, she would always ask me, you know, who'd you get smarter about today? And what did you learn about so-and-so? And that so-and-so was usually a kid who was disengaged. And um, so it became this sort of curiosity for me to think about, okay, what's that, what does that student need? Um, to, to, you know, just to dig into the text, to dig into the writing and discussing and just really participating in, in school.
0: And you mentioned Sam in your Stenhouse podcast, and, and she noted that it took her four years or, you know, around 40 classroom visits before she could actually ask you a question that you cared about uh, or make a point that changed how you thought. <laughs> so what, what happened in those first four years? Was it around building relationships and that professional trust?
1: Well, if you know Sam, you know, she's a little hyperbolic and I'm not, <laughs> I don't think it was four years. Um you know, we, we always had a good relationship. We always laughed and had fun. And, you know, I, I think when I started to really let her coach me was when she started sharing questions she was truly curious about. And it became more a partnership than somebody facilitating people running through my classroom. And I think that's when it became fun because I was taking all these risks, letting visitors observe. Um, and until she started taking risk sharing what she didn't know and what she wanted to get smarter about. I think that's when things really start clicking.
0: So when she was sharing her own inquiries with you, it became more of a level playing field, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I, uh, we laughed cause I introduced her the uh, first few times when she started facilitating visitors for me as my coach. Um, and what I was really trying to do was give her credibility to these kind of crusty high school teachers that had been sent there to be fixed by their principal. And um, I didn't really intend for her to be my coach, but she took that to heart. And so initially it was like, wait, what are you doing? What, what are you telling me this for? And what are you asking me this for? And um, so we, we sort of had to redefine our roles and she, she just didn't give up on me either. That was the other piece too. I think she just kept coming back and coming back with questions and finally there were some things that i started to care about like i saw how much she could really lend to my instruction
0: yeah that story with her pushing you to um rethink that one class and um uh, <laughs> very vulnerable of you to to open up like that so that i think it just felt very affirming when i read that and i think anyone can read this book and just feel like i can do that and and it's okay to make mistakes um uh, speaking of trust um you kind of use the, uh, the metaphor of masks, which I'm sure you weren't thinking about when you wrote this <laughs> to our current reality. Um, the mask more as a metaphor of just the personas and uh, personalities that kids wear when they come into your classroom and uh, the mask of apathy and anger, for example. They all, but they all seem to relate, relate to relationships and trust that, that we have with our kids. Uh, especially in the beginning of the year, what makes a teacher trustworthy to help pull off the masks with kids?
1: Yeah. You know, it was weird that we we wrote about masks because that we, you know, this was, we turned the final draft in way before COVID. Um, You know, I, I think for me, one of my core beliefs is that students would, if they could, that, that you know, no, nobody wants to look like a loser or fail. And so like when I would see kids come in angry or um, fooling around or, you know, I just I just didn't want to label them as that way all the time because I'd seen them in different contexts. I'd seen them around the school or on the football field and they didn't have that same mask on. And so when they would come into class with that mask on it was this, this you know, kind of fun challenge really to figure out, okay, what is this kid gonna need to take this mask off and be serious like he is when he's when he's on the field with his with his football team or when he's in the cafeteria talking to his buddies? Like, how can I, um, you know, get him to really be, I guess, vulnerable too? And and what 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 his needs are, or or you know, how he'd like to get smarter?
0: Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about Mauricio as one example from your book in the beginning and these, all these kids are trying to develop their identities at the secondary level and who they are, while trying to fit in and uh, avoid looking dumb. And, and you kind of, what you talk about there, you seems like entry points with these kids, not as yeah. necessarily bad things. If they bring a different mask to your classroom, but as as ways to, to engage with your level. And so Mauricio did not want to finish his writing you know, he was done, but you presented an authentic audience to him and that engaged him to uh, write a better piece through the writing process. Can you say more about that?
1: Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, Maurice was a, was a really great kid, um, but he really just intended to graduate from high school. Part of it was because he was undocumented and so college really wasn't an option um, at that point for him. He was just trying to get by with minimal effort. And so when I think about myself, like like when I'm just trying to get by or when I'm doing something that I don't like to do or that's hard for me to do, I've got to have a real reason to to dig back into it. Um and I think that having an audience that that we send, you know, I send writing out to people um because I think that gives you an urgency to make it better. So you don't I don't know, it just seems like if if some if a real person is going to read it, you're going to try better and you're going to revise it. You're going to you're going to you're going to put some effort into it. Um, the kids the kids all knew I loved them, so you know they was like, okay, whatever, this is good enough. Um, but but for other people, that seemed uh, an authentic audience seems to lend some um, urgency to kids wanting to redo and revise.
0: So then that leads into kind of the heart of the text is developing curriculum curriculum that you can anticipate. Cya. Uh, <laughs> was an interesting approach. You have expectations for kids, right? And, but sometimes those can be reflected in in our curriculum. And so how does your approach with curriculum so that we're not, I guess, selling them short, how does your approach to curriculum CYA help you keep your expectations high?
1: Well, I read when I was writing the book, Sam gave me a little excerpt from um, Stephen Wolk's book, Being Good and um, he cites two researchers in there, Demarius and LeCompte, and their definition of what curriculum was, and I didn't really know the curriculum was everything teachers do. I just thought it was, you know, the stuff you had to read or write or view. I didn't realize that it, you know, could also be the way you arrange the seating in the room or talk to kids, and so um, it sort of opened my eyes that curriculum is so much bigger, and so we were, we were um Sam and I were sitting there doing a little revising. She helped do the major editing of this book. Um, and she said, Okay, when you go in to do demonstration lessons, how do you prepare for these kids that you've never seen before? Like, like how do you plan for that? And I just looked at it and I said, Well, I gotta cover my ass. And we start laughing at CYA. And so we started to take that curriculum you anticipate for mixed audiences. I know we've kind of gone to like a PG rating now on your on your podcast. Um, but uh-huh. to, to think about, okay, if you're not one for long-term planning, which I wasn't, I didn't want to waste my time planning for kids I didn't know yet, which was a big mistake because once kids come to the you know class, you hit the ground running. I realized that if I did a little bit of long-term planning, it was going to give me more time um, in class doing individualized teaching or, or instruction because I wasn't, trying to coax a kid into doing what I wanted him to do. And so, you know, you've you know, you've taught, you've been a principal, you, you start to anticipate, you know, you're going to have struggling readers. You know you're going to have at least one.
0: Right. And you know,
1: you're going to have somebody who's going to say, this is stupid, I already learned this. And you know, you're going to have somebody who says, why do I have to read this? And, and you know, you're going to have somebody who wants to know, um, okay, well, is, is this, you know, good enough? They, they need a model. So if I started anticipating some of those questions, As I planned units, I would have that text ready for the kid who struggled. I would have a reason to say, okay, well, here's why we're digging into this. I would have a case study that if um, the one I had chosen to use as a model for the class didn't work, I would have another case study I could share with the kid so he could see a reason. Those kind of things um, in the CYA structures helped me with the long term planning. So during the day when I'm with kids, I can make those those tweaks and, and those small changes to re-engage kids who have kind of dropped off a little
0: bit. Mm-hmm. And you carry those plans forward year after year um, as any curriculum, but you adapt them to each group of kids that you get.
1: Well, yeah. And so so, you know, thinking about, you know, I, I'm trying to couch, I'm trying to really cradle standards and compelling topics. I like um,
0: that. Cradling the standards. I think that for me, that made a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. Especially yeah. all the, all that equity work we're talking about now and, you know, how fair standards to different populations of kids and just trying to think about, okay, if I can find a really compelling topic, that's going to be timeless. There'll be work from the previous year that I don't necessarily have to change. But mm-hmm. The fun work would be, you know, updating articles, updating the text, I, you know, I'm just trying to like build each year onto um, what I've done the year before, but not to a point where you forget what it was like on a first read, you know, when you read the same book over and over again with kids, you just forget what it was like. And then you are not as patient. So I think, you know, I was trying to model a couple of those in the book for teachers so they could see that not every year they were having to throw everything out and start over again, because that is just grueling in terms of planning right and and also i think articulating what you've done between grade levels as well you know if every year ninth grade teachers are doing something different than than they did the year before then it's hard for the tenth grade teachers to know how to build onto that
0: Mm -hmm. so you want that articulation through throughout the grades too is there a a tool or a template they like just more that was one thing i was wondering too is what is this do you use um curriculum mapping tool or do you use more just microsoft word document what where do you keep these plans (laughs) well you know a couple
1: i i have a format and i i have it in the book i think i I showed the book right next to you to look um where i just kind of go through all those six keys Mm
0: -hmm. um
1: and i just i I literally just write them out and then i have that workshop wheel where Mm. the work time um, is a the, is the, is the major part of the time I'm with kids. And that's that's where I start thinking about, okay, what are kids going to read, write and talk about during that period. So um, I guess I have two tools. I have one to kind of do a long range plan. And then I've got a little daily plan that's very simple that there's some days I don't do it every day, but I don't have to because I have that long-term plan in place. I know where I'm going.
0: So you got two things in place. You got the 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 unit of study, but you've got the the framework of the workshop model that kind of drives your daily instruction. And I, I remember a quote that I appreciated too here, early in your teaching career, you felt like every day felt like starting over again. And that's when you started to, and I felt the same way teaching too, in my first years, but you started to integrate more purpose in your workshop beyond just becoming I guess just better readers and writers, which is not a priority for every kid in our classroom, but looking towards something, you just saw that larger purpose and workshop connotes making something, right? And so you talk yeah. about the makes and the do's in your tasks within your unit.
1: Yeah, you know, I think uh, you know, I was an elementary school teacher for 10 years before going to high school. Mm-hmm. The last grade I taught was first grade before I I hit high school. And um, I, I had learned a lot and had the privilege to study a little bit with Donald Graves and Donald Murray. And so I brought, come, I brought a lot of that old school workshop to high school with me. And I think my mindset was, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use workshop to make them into better readers and writers so they can survive their other courses. Uh, and I thought of the strategies as really tools to access content. The problem was, and you're right when you say not all, that's not enough for a lot of kids, um, I wasn't giving kids a chance to use those tools to do real work. And I think that's where um, planning with um, long-term plans with, with compelling topics in mind really gave kids an opportunity um, to read and write and talk about authentic things that were happening. And, and I think, you know, it goes down to these reasons, like kids need more than one reason to really read. A lot of times I could get kids to do things just because they liked me, but there was always three or four, especially, yeah you know, there was like 10th grade girls who I just annoy. I don't know why, but it, it wasn't enough for them. They, but once there was an audience that they were writing for, that hooked those three. Sometimes it was, you know, um, controversial, questions that didn't necessarily have one right answer that hooked another three kids. Um, choice of text hooked another few kids so I started thinking about okay how, how can I give kids more reason to to read and write um, and I think then that's when the workshop really started coming alive. They were making things that they saw purpose in.
0: You seem to add more structure to a workshop model in a sense in terms of your long-term planning. I mean you, you you're very fluid in, in your daily instruction, but adding more maybe entry points, I guess, to, to the unit of study itself. It, uh, that was what I took away from it.
1: Yeah. I interview people all the time, formally and sometimes and more informally. And I just started realizing how many people just didn't choose to read or like to read. And it didn't matter if you gave them, you know, the hottest YA book there was or the best seller on the New York Times. Just because you said it was a good book, that wasn't going to be enough. Um, especially when I would talk to to men or young men, they were like, I want to read for a reason. I want to read to be able to do something. And that kind of really hit home with me that that a lot of kids in my intervention classes were ones who just, who didn't read for enjoyment, who didn't read because somebody said, this is a great book. But they would read if it was um, something that was going to empower them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the stories from this, the book are great, and, and you kind of walk the reader through every process uh, from where they started to using these tools to, to be successful and empowered. This quote from page 67 I highlighted, our questions drive how we build our priority knowledge about a topic. Our goal is not to memorize facts, dates, names, or places, but to study a real-world problem that can affect how we vote, the health of the economy, and how we respond to an international issue. So you made a good point there too about providing students with background knowledge that that they genuinely care about. What is your process for collecting this information and knowledge to be able to give them those additional entry points? I know like you're active on Twitter, for example. I mean, you pull information from there or What is your reading diet like?
1: I guess. No, I tend to read a lot of. um, I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of newspapers. I I I don't read as much fiction as as I probably should, um, because I think I'm I'm like some of those young men in my classes. I like to read to get smarter about something, Um, and I think that whole background knowledge piece is is. um, So there was a study I read by Hattie and Yates, and they talked about how background knowledge is um, like the number one predictor of success and the faster you can assess what kids know, the faster you can build it so they can go deeper. And I thought, okay, so what would that look like if we were trying to build background knowledge about an issue that you didn't have a lot of information about? So what I write a lot about in the book is Syria. And I had just kind of heard snippets of the Syrian refugee crisis, and I didn't really know what it was about. Um, but I thought, okay, I, I think that would be a that would be a really interesting unit to build. Um, and and while I'm building it, I can watch how I build my own background knowledge, and that will inform um, how I share with you know what how I could teach kids to build their own. So I think as a teacher, and I learned this from Debbie Miller, an amazing first grade teacher in Colorado, um, Debbie said, my job isn't to build background knowledge for these first graders, um, it's to show them how to build their own background knowledge, because that's going to empower them. And so um, watching what I need to get smarter about an issue or a topic informs them what I want to share with students. Uh, it's like with Syria, I, I really wasn't even quite sure where on the map it was. I mean, I knew it was in the Middle East, and I wanted to know like what the big deal was and why Obama was crying because of the chemical weapons that had been dropped. And I started asking all these questions, and then those questions led me to um, nonfiction. But then the questions I had helped me sift and sort what part of that nonfiction I, I read. And it was such a big topic that... Even though I had studied it for two months before I taught the unit, there was still so much more I didn't know about it. And that then provided this um, sort of shoulder to shoulder collaboration that I could do with the kids. Here's how I found this out. Maybe you can find your answer to your question by trying the same process. So I think it's it's like being more collaborative and just modeling those thinking processes for kids.
0: Sounds like a similar partnership relationship between you and your coach.
1: <laughs> yeah I mean questions right questions drive our curiosity drives you know what we give our time to and what we decide to read and what we decide to skip and what we decide to read more of and and um you know I think it's just a lot of it's reigniting that curiosity with high school kids they're curious just not necessarily about the topics we want them to be curious about so we have to create that curiosity
0: yeah and the, and the, the concept of engagement is has been around a while but I think this book, presents it in a whole new light, and just allows the reader, the educator, to dive deep into your process and kind of walk out of it feeling like they can do it. Yeah, the book is, Why Do I Have to Read This? Literacy Strategies to Engage Your Most Reluctant Students by Chris Devaney. This is your fifth book, correct?
1: Fifth book, yep.
0: And it's each one, they're all good. Uh, each one gets a little better a little more personal a little more uh, continues to be authentic real and funny thank you so, thank you chris
1: Matt, thank you for your time today i appreciate it